Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, we start with Santander and its plans to tackle poor customer service in the UK by rerouting its call centres from Bangalore and Pune in India back to Britain. Some of the decisions have been prompted by the realisation that labour costs in India are going up. And one factor that's certainly in play, according to analysts looking at the sector, is the fact that in the UK and also in the US, call centre staff who traditionally don't stay in place for that long are being forced to stay in their booths simply because of fear of unemployment. Eurozone ministers meet in Brussels today to consider for the first time default as part of the Greek rescue plan. If we have what they're now calling the German plan of just a straight bond swap coupled with debt buybacks at a far, far lower price than the original price, so it would be, quote-unquote, a default. But it seems to be we're getting to that consensus where any plan that's put forward and adopted needs to address the fundamental underlying issue, Greece's huge debt burden. And speculation over who will succeed Deutsche Bank's chief executive, Joseph Ackerman, could be over. It will be reassuring to investors that Anne Shujain, who leads the part of Deutsche that contributes 90% of its revenues, will be co-chief executive in some form. The questions being raised today is, is this just a terrible fudge? Joining me this week is Megan Murphy, our investment banking correspondent, chief regulatory correspondent Brooke Masters, and senior companies correspondent Mick Kavanagh. Let's start the show with stateside, though. This week, the US banking update comes from Dan McCrum. Over to you, Dan. Thank you, Patrick. And so the biggest stories in finance last week. We had a settlement between regulators and JP Morgan for $228 million. We saw that hedge funds continue to feel the pain as the sector itself is struggling to make returns. And U.S. banks, again on the regulatory front, were warned not to cut too many staff. But first, JP Morgan. It is to pay $228 million to settle allegations that it was overcharging municipalities when they were issuing bonds. This follows a string of investigations as the cash-strapped states wonder exactly how they're going to raise money and also the steady trickle of settlements following on from the bad behaviour in the pre-financial crisis. JP Morgan said the investigation focused on a small group of employees who concealed their behaviour from management and are no longer with the firm. It's since increased its surveillance and is behaving properly. So that's OK then. Hedge funds, however, they are struggling a little. As we reach the halfway mark, it looks like the average fund manager has returned little more than 2% to their investors. That compares with the S&P 500, for instance, up about 6% over the same period. Several big name losers. It has been a bad couple of months for Paulson & Co., the third largest hedge fund in the world. Mr. Paulson's flagship funds lost more than 10% in June and is now down 18% for the year. But several other hedge funds caught up in that as well. The big names, Tudor, More Capital, Caxton, Highbridge, all losing somewhere between 3 and 5% for the year so far. 
one fund, MLM Macro, struggling with these difficult trading conditions and unpredictable economic winds, dropping 9% in June. It's lost its investors nearly a quarter of their capital so far this year. And finally, back to regulation. As we reach the halfway stage, and it is proving very difficult to make money, the banks are starting to cut back on staff. Regulators, however, are warning that they must protect their risk management staff and systems from any planned cost cuts. Again, illustrating the problem that the banks are having navigating this new regulatory environment where the costs of doing so have gone up. But the fact that they aren't allowed to be as risky as they were before is making it much harder to make profits. That's all from me this week. And back to you in the studio. Thanks, Dan. Let's start in the UK and Santander late last week announced that it had closed a couple of its offshored call centres in India and was bringing back the work to the UK, specifically to its three UK call centres in Liverpool, Leicester and Glasgow. Brooke, this is an interesting move from Santander and obviously it follows sharp criticism of the bank's customer service in the UK. Back about a year ago, it was the most complained about bank in terms of customer service in Britain. And obviously, the new chief executive of that business, Anna Bottin, is moving quite quickly to try and address these issues. It's part of a larger trend also that many companies that have tried offshoring their customer service have found that people calling are uncomfortable when they don't quite understand the accents and also for things like banking where people need to know where the nearest branch is. And so I think as you look around, you know, other banks have begun to do this sort of thing as well, or at a minimum, at least route things to Ireland where the language difficulties are not as big. Mick, you've been looking at the broader trend that Brooke mentioned. It's not just banks bringing these call centres back to the UK. I think what we're seeing is a continuation of what's been a fairly long-standing backlash against customer-facing call centre functions. But I think beneath the surface of that, we're still going to see a lot of outsourcing, particularly in banking and telecoms companies, which have traditionally led the way here. I think what's particularly of concern for UK unions is we're also starting to see public sector agencies and departments following the path that they've trailed. But in terms of the actual call centre operations, though, bringing those back to Britain, I mean, obviously, Santander has made a big play out of this being a response to customer service complaints and so on. That clearly is part of the story. But I guess it's also a cost story as well, isn't it? Yeah, I think realistically, some of the decisions have been prompted by realisation that um, labour costs in India are going up. The companies there are having problems retaining their staff. And in fact, some of the moves are really a manifestation that you can actually do call centre business here more cheaply. And one factor that's certainly in play, according to analysts looking at the sector, is the fact that in the UK and also in the US, call centre staff who traditionally don't stay in place for that long are being forced to stay in their booths simply because of fear of unemployment. So I think if you see um, economies improve in the Western world, we'll see uh, revert to the pattern of call centre work continuing to drift abroad. And let's not forget also a lot of these Indian companies are actually currently investing in other territories such as Central America, South Africa and so on. So I think this notion that call centre staff are not as good might be true on average, but these companies are really trying to drive up the quality of the customer service. So unless UK-based companies keep running hard, um, they're going to face eventual competition. Let's move on now to Greece and potentially fundamental revision of the Eurozone strategy in dealing with the country's debt crisis. 
there's been lots of toing and froing between the public sector and the private sector bondholders over this whole affair. And Megan, we talked about this last week. Today, Eurozone ministers are meeting in Brussels to consider the latest plan of attack on this. But it feels as if there has been a shift, maybe a shift away from this private sector plan drafted by the French banks a couple of weeks ago to roll over their holdings of Greek debt for up to 30 years. Do you think this is a, a bit of a moment in terms of this whole process moving forward? Well, as you're speaking there, I was trying to determine in my mind whether I think this is the moment or whether I think this is going to be one of a series of moments over the summer. I think that the one thing that is pushing this forward today is this deteriorating situation in Italy, where we've seen um, Italian pawns and the spread against German bonds rise to its highest level, the figures is in the past decade or maybe even ever. And we've seen the credit default spreads rise to 272 right before I came down here, which is alarming. And so I think there is a new sense of purpose on these talks. The problem is, did the French proposal really address the problem of Greece's debt burden? I think the consensus answer to that was actually no, that it didn't address that fundamental problem. So I think it's a good sign that we seem to have a meeting of the minds on, look, we need to tackle the fundamental issue, which is Greece's huge debt burden. And we seem to have a consensus that, look, if we have the, what they're now calling the German plan of just a straight bond swap coupled with debt buybacks, that would be at a far, far lower price than the original price. So it would be, quote unquote, a default, either a selective default or a default. But it seems to be we're getting to that consensus where any plan that's put forward and adopted needs to address the fundamental underlying issue, which is a good sign. But time is ticking here. And that's the real issue. I would be surprised, actually, at this stage, if the French, the whole of the French blueprint was dead. Speaking to bankers late on Friday after their latest meeting in Rome, I get the sense that you know there's still a lot of fighting going on. And the message that was sent back to those European officials from the banks was that if the banks are going to give more in terms of, I don't know, lowering the coupon on the French proposed bond, then there has to be more ground given from the public sector side as well. So I suspect the news out of Brussels that we were carrying today that Eurozone ministers have, have kind of abandoned that whole idea is part of the whole game, I suspect, as well. It'll be interesting to see how this week evolves. What do you think, Brooke? Well, it'd also be very interesting because coming up at the end of the week, we have the first really good up-to-date revealing of what exactly all the big banks hold in terms of Greek corporate debt and Greek sovereign debt and and for the sovereign debt, the maturity levels. and The the, long-awaited stress test test results, yeah. Exactly. And while we all kind of pretty much have a good feel for the broad numbers, the actual details will be quite new and may also add fuel to the fire and send. Italian bank stocks are already in trouble today. Depending who holds what, we could see a lot of movement next Monday. I'm a bit concerned that that we just need progress in some form, some type of assurance from the market, you know, and there is, I think, concern among people I talked to that Friday is either going to be Black Friday in terms of the, you know, what the stress tests reveal, or it will hopefully give reassurance to the market. But I don't think there's that level of confidence out there at all. The other thing to be aware of, as you were saying, how quickly do we get this resolved? Does it drag on through the summer? And I think, you know, speaking to some of the banks involved in those talks last week, that was slightly bizarrely, I think, their sense that, you know, oh, some of the people chairing the meetings earlier last week were saying, well, don't worry, we've got until September, October to sort this out. That's not the message from the markets at all. The, the jitters in the markets suggest, you know, this needs to be resolved quickly. So I think there's definitely friction between the public and private sector over that as well. 
I think we should maybe move on to our final topic for today, Deutsche Bank and the speculation over who is to succeed. Chief Executive Joseph Ackerman looks to be nearing its end. Over the weekend, Deutsche's nominations committee met and over the coming days, we're due to get meetings by other committees, the so-called Presidium of Deutsche and then the Supervisory Board. Basically, the proposal out there is that Mr Ackerman should be succeeded by two people, joint chief executives, Anshu Jain, the head of the investment bank, and the proposal as it stands is that his co-chief executive should be Jürgen Fitchen, the current head of Germany for Deutsche. That second name is maybe a little more contentious. Uh, some noises from within the bank, Mr Fitchen might not be the best person to do that co-role with Anshu Jain. Megan, you've been taking a look at this. I guess from an investor point of view, Mr. Jane's the confirmation that he is going to be co-CEO is, is quite an important one. Deutsche Bank's recession puts solving the Greek crisis to shame in terms of the complexity and amount of meetings and yeah. intrigue surrounding it. Look, yes, it will be reassuring to investors that Anne Jane, who leads the part of Deutsche that contributes 90% of its revenues, will be co-chief executive in some form. The problem is, as I think the questions being raised today is, is this just a terrible fudge? And is it going to cause rivalries and factions within the bank? We were discussing just before we went on air some situations where it hasn't worked as well when you have a co-CEO situation. It's very common in investment banking. For example, Barclays Capital has co-CEO structure right now with Rich Ritchie and Jerry Del Messier, two very different personalities who work well. At a group banking level, it's more difficult because the business is so broad, especially at Deutsche, where you have um, the additional political element of being what Deutsche represents in Germany to German politicians and the German people. So I mean, you can see the elegance of it, of having someone like Jürgen Fitchen, who's head of Germany, who has the contacts and the political nous to sort of, you know, step in and steady the ship in terms of, let's call them German questions about Anshu, who doesn't speak German, who doesn't have those type of... He's learning. He's (laughs) learning, exactly. But it does raise this questions of, is this going to work? What is Ackerman doing in the background on this in terms of puppeteering? There's been this bizarre sort of back and forth over his potentially becoming a chairman of the supervisory board. But I suppose it'll be an interesting debate now what happens with Mr. Fitchin's candidacy for this role because he's getting on in years. He's 62, nearly 63. Um, If he were appointed co-CEO, it couldn't be for very long. You'd have that issue in a couple of years' time, which is why a lot of people are pointing to Rainer Nesker, who's the current head of the retail bank, who has youth on his side and also has quite a nice operational balance with Anshu Jain. Plus the key point, those two men actually get on very well on a personal level. But the, the race is on now to see whether the Deutsche succession process gets resolved before the Greeks uh, <laughs> process, as you say. I'm betting on Greece. <laughs> that's all we have time for sadly today. All that's left is for me to thank Megan, Brooke and Mick in the studio in London and Dan in New York. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor. What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? 
Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.